Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mekaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us for episode 447 with Hal Gregerson. Hal is back and he is talking about innovation. He's teamed up with some of the most brilliant folks studying this with another book called The Innovator's DNA. So he's got some good stuff to share, such as one, the core skills required for innovation, two, the questions disruptive innovators ask, and three, how to network for new ideas. So if you'd like to take a look at the show notes, the transcript, or the links to items we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F447. And here's Hal's story. Hal Gregerson is the executive director of the MIT Leadership Center and a senior lecturer in leadership and innovation at the MIT Sloan School of Management, where he pursues his vocation of executive teaching, coaching, and research by exploring how leaders in business, government, and society discover provocative new ideas, develop the human and organizational capacity to realize those ideas, and deliver positive, powerful results. So thanks to Hal for spending some time with us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Working remotely can be a challenge especially for teams that are new to it. How do you deal with your work environment being the same as home while staying connected and productive? And then there's your newest coworker, the cat. Well, your friends at Trello have been powering remote teams globally for almost a decade. At a time when teams must come together more than ever to solve big challenges, Trello's here to help. Trello, part of Atlassian's collaborative suite, is an app with an easy-to-understand visual format plus tons of features that make working with your team functional and just plain fun. Trello keeps everyone organized and on the same page, helping teams communicate, focus, and connect. Teams of all shapes and sizes at companies like Google, Fender, Costco, and likely your favorite neighborhood coffee shop all use Trello to collaborate and get work done. Try Trello for free and learn more at Trello.com. That's T-R-E-L-L-O.com. Trello.com. Here is Hal. Hal, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Delighted to be with you, Pete, once again. Oh, yes. Well, I'm thrilled to have you again. And so last episode was 385 for folks who didn't hear back in January. And we talked about questions and it was so fun. But I'd love to hear in the interim period, what are some fascinating questions that you've encountered in these months that have passed? Well, one that I bumped into came right after a speech at South by Southwest. I had to, the chance to get in a car and drive north of Austin, Texas to Waco, Texas, and did some work with the folks at Magnolia, um, Chip and Joanna Gaines and their senior people there. And at the end of some conversations about where they've been and where they're going, we actually explored quite deeply what kinds of questions really matter um, in this new launching point at Magnolia. And one of the questions that crossed my mind that we talked about briefly was, what is truth in a healthy relationship? And um, I realized that when things are, when a relationship, be it at work or even at home, is unhealthy, Truth takes on a completely different um, element or definition um, in unhealthy versus healthy relationships. And I honestly don't have the perfect or great answer to that question. I'm exploring it. But it was one that caused me to think twice about the kinds of things I do at work and at home. Well, that reminds me of the Gospels, but I think it's Pilate who asks, what is truth? <laughs> it's like, 
That's a, what a question, man. <laughs> that's that's tricky. <laughs> well, I mean, whatever it is, truth, light. I mean, yeah. but the notion is, you know, in a very unhealthy relationship, truth gets defined by a, defined by a single person. So, thinking of an abusive boss or even an abusive abusive par- partner or spouse, and in those instances, the world revolves around that individual, and truth gets singularly defined by them. And their version of truth is very untruthful. It's just full of shades of gray and ugliness. And um, But in a healthy, equal sort of context relationship, be it, again, at work or at home, truth is a different thing. And it's consensual. And it's um, we're creating it. And it's something beautiful um, versus the opposite. So, so again, that was the, it was it was an amazing conversation with Chip and Joanna Gaines and and some of their senior people around some of the key issues and and it just raised some really important questions and they care deeply about creating spaces there in our homes especially where truth can thrive. That's good. Well, we were just breaking the ice and then you got some <laughs> real. <laughs> we love to break stuff. deep ice. We love to break deep ice, right, Pete? <laughs> That's good. Well, I appreciate it. I'll be chewing on it for sure. And uh, I want to chat with you in particular right around now because you got another book coming out here, The Innovator's DNA. What's the big idea here? Well, the big idea is that this book is a revised version of one that came out in 2011. And basically, um, we've updated it. But here's the genesis of the book, The Innovator's DNA. Jeff Dyer, a good colleague, and I were talking about the innovation skills of disruptive innovators, and we then crossed paths with Clayton Christensen at Harvard Business School, who coined the term disruptive innovation. And we asked Clay in a very direct way, you made up, you created this concept of disruptive innovation, arguably, and um, the question we asked him was, how do people like Jeff Bezos at Amazon or Peter Thiel at PayPal um, Nicholas Zenstrom at Skype, this again was 15 years ago. How do those people get the ideas that actually disrupt entire industries? And Clay had his big six foot, seven foot hand, scratched his head and thought, I don't know. And he, we collectively concluded, let's figure it out. And so we interviewed a hundred plus of these people from all over the world. Diane Green, who founded VMware, um, Fadi Gondor, who founded a company in the Middle East called Aramex, and basically had the chance to ask them, what were you doing when you got the initial idea that led to a very disruptive organization that changed the world in the face of it? Well, that's an exciting question, and I've enjoyed perusing your Appendix A sample of Innovators Interviewed, and Mm. it is an impressive lineup there. So what were they doing? Were they all showering? What were they up to? (laughs) Well, it's something that I, what you do is, I mean, you watch them go about their everyday work and um, they spend 30% of their time doing something that other leaders don't, even CEOs and founders. And um, here's what they do. They, they, number one, they wake up in the morning with a problem or a challenge to be solved or found. They are problem finders and solvers. That's how they approach the world. And so they have that mindset. And once they get into that sort of focus, it's like, okay, I'm going to now try to figure something out. And they do it with five very specific skills. They ask very challenging, status quo challenging questions frequently and often. 
They observe the world like anthropologists. They're carefully watching and paying attention. They network and talk to people who are the polar opposites of them, very different, in order to get new insights and spark new insights. They experiment and try things that other people aren't willing to try, small, fast, cheap experiments. And when they behaviorally do those things, questioning, observing, networking for new ideas and experimenting, it actually gives them the ability to connect the unconnected, to think associationally, to put together ideas other people couldn't. Einstein called it combinatorial play. And, you know, imagine someone actively solving a problem, getting up, getting out, getting into the world, asking provocative questions, making deep observations, talking to creative people, experimenting and trying things, and taking the time to associationally think and put stuff together that other people don't. Imagine that kind of active problem-solving process, getting primary information, primary data versus other leaders or people even in organizations sitting in their office space, being tasked with getting a creative new idea. Mm -hmm. um, and that's basically all they do. Go get an idea. <laughs> they think, you know, they sit there and think with each other and they talk in their office spaces mm -hmm. and they look at Excel spreadsheets and PowerPoint files. And at the end of the day, you know, if you were betting your retirement income on the ideas that come out of those pretty stale, bland, office-based conversations versus this very active problem-solving and finding approach of getting up, getting out, observing, networking, experimenting, questioning, and associationally thinking, you know, where would you put your retirement funds? And basically, they'd go towards the people who are using these discovery skills to find and solve problems. Because when we, when we use these skills that way, we actually reduce the probability of failure with our brand new idea. It makes it more likely to happen. Mm -hmm. Well, it also sounds like a whole lot more fun. <laughs> oh, totally. Absolutely. Totally. Yeah. Okay. Well, so there's so much good stuff in there. So I want to maybe start with the problem finding and solving. So you'd say they spend 30% of their time doing stuff that others don't. And that is that they wake up, these innovators, and they just want to find a problem or solve a problem. It's just like they're like, it sounds like in the first minutes of arising. And so... Those problems, are they kind of like all over the place in terms of, oh, this is an interesting thing I want to tinker with, or are they kind of pretty focused in terms of in their kind of functional or industry zones? Oh, they're deeply focused within their own, they're deeply focused within a space, but they're open to other surprises. And this is where if you go to Jeff Bezos at Amazon, it's like, here's this guy, he's working in finance, and he notices out of the corner of his eye 20 years, like 25 years ago, that um, the internet was explosive growth rates of 1,200 to 1,500% per year. And it's like, what's going on over there? And that's the point at which he then becomes very curious, very actively using these discovery skills to collect new data. And all of that work, relentlessly trying to figure out what's going on with this internet thing, leads him to sell books on the internet, which other people weren't doing. Mm -hmm. And so the notion is we actually do care about something, as Richard Branson said, enough to do something about it. Um, and, you know, if, if I'm, I remember this uh, story of um, an animator at Pixar uh, talking about Steve Jobs getting in the elevator 20 plus years ago and surprising this young animator with a whole series of questions, again, two or three decades ago around 
what kind of music do you listen to? And what are you paying attention to with your music? And where do you listen to your music? And how do you store your music? And he's asking him all these questions about his music in the elevator. Mm-hmm. And Steve Jobs was trying to figure out the iPod. Yeah. <laughs> and it didn't matter where he was. Even if he was in, in an elevator with a stranger, he was trying to figure out better data to find and solve this issue around the iPod. And so they care deeply about an issue. And frankly, you know, I bet more than half of the leaders I interact with around the world really don't care about the work they're doing. They don't care deeply about the problems and challenges that they could find and solve in their own space. That's the starting point to use these discovery skills to build something different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It feels kind of like an obsession. You know, it's like I'm going to talk to anybody I bump into about this thing because it's on my mind a lot. Well, and that's how it works. And so mm-hmm. whether it's David Nealerman who found the JetBlue in the U.S. a while back and the Zool Airlines in Brazil, and now he's founding a new airline in the U.S. called Moxie. But, you know, he's just, con- Nealerman's constantly exploring and trying to source new information with these discovery skills to be able to solve problems and build things that other people don't build. Yeah. It just reminds me of the times I've sort of been in the throes of a question and I, I just want to investigate it. And I've often thought, boy, I would, if I were to become a detective, mm. <laughs> you know, in law enforcement, I might become a terrible husband <laughs> because <laughs> like it would just play me as like, oh, I'm so close. How does it all fit together? You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's how it works, Pete. That's how it works. Yeah, certainly. Well, so I imagine that well, some have and some have not found out ways to, I don't know if the word is control or harness or tame the wild stallions of, you know, obsessive, innovative thought. You know, these hundred plus innovators, disruptive innovators we interviewed for the Innovators DNA book, um, I don't think they did shut it off. All right. <laughs> their, their partners just dealt with it. <laughs> they are relentless, obsessive problem finders and solvers. And... um and so, you know, I mentioned David Nealeman. Here's this guy who grew up, you know, he's roughly my age, his late 50s, early 60s. And, um, you know, this is 40 years ago. He bumps into um, a woman named June Morris and they found Morris Air. And then that gets sold off to Southwest Airlines. And then David Nealeman gets fired from Southwest by Herb Keller because he's too innovative. Um, and, and he has a five-year non-competed agreement. He comes back and he founds JetBlue Airlines. Um, and it's incredibly successful by all metrics and standards. And then he goes back to where he was born in Brazil to found Azul Airlines on a JetBlue model, slightly modified for the Brazilian markets. And so David, whenever he's operating the world, he's asking these catalytic questions. And the first starting point becomes, what's going on here? And so David's constantly asking of the world around him, what's working here? What's not working and why? You know, those are simple to ask, but it requires huge trust to be able to get answers to them. And you say trust, what do you mean? You know, if I walked outside of my office right now and asked the, the staff around me, what's working, what's not and why, um, they would be maybe looking at me like, can I trust you with the real answers? You know, this is working and that's not. Oh, right. Trust on their part of you. Exactly. So it takes a deep commitment that I'm not just asking these questions to be clever or get a career advancement. I'm asking them to make this place better off for us and for the people we're serving. And that's how David operates in the world. Mm-hmm. And so you've got this relentless set of questions about the, the way things are, the status quo and what's working, what's not, and why. 
that lead him then to like, well, why don't we try this? And how might we do that? And what if we try this? These are very prescriptive, world-changing questions. So his what-if question around what if we stopped having paper tickets and what if we gave people codes over the phone to get on our planes at Morris Airlines ultimately led him. He actually was the inventor of electronic ticketing. Mm -hmm. And then when he goes down to Brazil, you know, there are issues of where are we going to fly out of? What airport are we going to get some landing rights to? And there were two major airlines in Brazil who locked up all the major airports near Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro. And in Sao Paulo, there was an airport, you know, an hour and a half away. And they actually got some landing rights there, ended up getting it all set up. And a few months before the launch of Azul Airlines in Sao Paulo, they realized the taxi ride from downtown Sao Paulo to the airport on average costs more than the ticket of the airplane. It was just too far away and too expensive. Mm. And so David's like, well, why don't we just build a huge bus system to transport thousands of people every day? And senior leaders are like, we're not in the bus business, David. And David's response was, well, why not? Yeah. <laughs> and he, he was persistent about it. And now they have these amazingly clean, Wi-Fi equipped, very, you know, wonderful rides from downtown Sao Paulo to the airport. Conversely, in Rio de Janeiro, they, again, couldn't get landing rides at the main airport, but there was this airport off the Copacabana Beach in right down downtown Rio de Janeiro. There was a military airport that was not being used, and David and his team went to the government and asked them about it, and their answer was no, you can't. David's response was, well, why not? And he was completely persistent about this why not to the point that that's where they finally started the Zool Airlines was at that you know, we're not going to have it here airport off the coast. And so, you know, that's just the way he operates and others like him. They're constantly asking these questions of descriptively what's working, what's not, and why that leads them very practically to, well, how might we do this differently? And what if we tried that? And why not this? That's cool. That's cool. So, well, there's so much there. I think maybe we talk about these people. I want to maybe touch upon some of the research in the book about, you know, nature versus nurture. If anyone's saying, oh, yeah, but that's them and not me. Yeah. Uh, what do you have to say to that? Well, my first response would be if I could see the hands of everybody listening to this podcast right now and ask them, how many of you define yourself as innovators? If the group out there was like any group of leaders I asked that question of in the world about at most 50% of the hands go up. And then, you know, I'll ask them, well, do you solve problems? And everybody's hand goes up. And now I got them, I've got them cornered at that point. It's like, well, if you've got a problem, you don't have a solution, and you have to create a solution, what do you have to do? Well, you're an innovator, right? And they're like, oh, got me. You're right. And so the issue is um, some of the challenge of this nature versus nurture and am I innovative or not? Am I creative or not? It all gets bundled up into these weird words of innovation versus do I just solve problems creatively? The second part is, you know, truthfully, part of our discovery, innovation skills are actually nature. <laughs> In fact, five systematic studies of genetically identical twins who, they're, they're born, but for tragic reasons, they get separated at birth and they grow up in different families and neighborhoods and contexts and schools, and then they test them as adults. And about one-third of our ability to use these innovation skills regularly of questioning, observing, networking, experimenting, and associational thinking, one-third of that is actually a bit genetic. Mm -hmm. So 
I happen to, I'm very tactile. I touch and explore things with my hands and the world. Like I kicked out of school five times by the time I was in junior high school because I was always creating problems. But the issue is every one of those touch points, because I've got more dopamine four in my brain, cause me to get data that somebody who's not touching doesn't get. And all those data points of all those touches allows me to connect and see things other people don't see. Yeah. So one third of it is arguably genetic. But the other two thirds. Right. The vast majority. No, no, no. That's one third. The other two thirds is pure nurture. It's the the families. It's the schools. It's the places we work. And, you know, all we have to do, Pete, is think of four-year-olds around the world. And if they've grown up in reasonable homes and places, not, I mean, if it's really extreme abuse, it's a different story. But most four-year-olds, what do they do? They ask a gazillion questions. They're watching you like hawks and eagles. They are talking to just about anybody. They'll try just about anything. And they are exceptional at connecting the unconnected and surprising you with ideas you never thought of. Mm-hmm. That's good. Certainly. Well, and I think that's hopeful. So 100% of us were once four years old, Pete. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we had these <laughs> skills. We had these creative problem-solving skills. But unfortunately, sometimes homes and schools and even work can crush them. And so given that, you know, two-thirds of the discovery, creative innovation skills is just the world around us, it's nurture. If we want to get better at it, it's a choice. Certainly. We just have to choose to use these skills to solve our problems. Well, it's encouraging as compared to, say, IQ. You know, it seems like we got a whole lot more room to grow and expand our creative skills than maybe our IQ. Oh, absolutely. Um, That's huge. And so, you know, the the data around this art, following what you just said, we are far more capable of making improvements around our creativity and discovery skills than we are around this thing we call IQ. Absolutely. All right. Well, then let's talk about how to do it. So, you know, we talked about questioning in some detail last time, and it was a blast. I recommend episode 385, everybody. But um, anything else you want to add about questioning or, or should we kind of move into observing? No, I think questioning is the starting point. It's like, number one, care about a problem enough to do something about it. Number two, you know, start asking more questions. And if you have no other time than this, one way to ask better questions is what I call a question burst. It's whatever your issue is. Set a timer for four minutes. Don't answer any of the questions. Don't explain why you're asking them to yourself or other people. And in four fast minutes, generate as many possible questions as you can about the issue. And simply doing that, if nothing else, will help any of us ask better questions to start down the path of getting better answers. And once we define two or three of those questions that really count, What we know from the data from the Innovators DNA Assessment, where we've collected data from self and 360 assessments of leaders from all over the world, all kinds of industries, 20,000 of them, we basically know that if we only ask questions, there's no relationship with that and getting valuable new ideas, new businesses, new products, new services, new process. So all we do is ask questions. (laughs) We're not going to go anywhere. It's like spinning wheels. But if we ask questions and actively get up, get out into the world and either observe like anthropologists, network for new ideas or experiment and just try things, then there's an interaction effect they call in in a regression analysis where, in fact, questioning and observing does deliver valuable new ideas. Questioning and networking does deliver valuable new ideas. Questioning and experimenting does that. So it's the combination of asking with doing 
that makes the big difference. And I'm happy to share an example or two if you're interested. Oh, please do, yes. You know, so you may have never heard of Rod Drury. Does that ring a bell? I think, but is it the Drury Inn? No, that's good. <laughs> that's really good on Drury Lane in London. That would even work for the gingerbread man. No, not that Rod Drury. Um, so I had never heard of Rod Drury. And one of the things we did related to the Innovator's DNA book is we worked with Credit Suisse. We built this innovation premium metric where we're able to, um, with, with the share price of a company, a publicly held company, determine if investors believe that this company is going to do valuable new and different things in the future. And so part of a share price of a stock is related to the things we're currently doing. And for some companies, investors pay a premium because they say, look, you're going to be doing something different, I think, in the future. I'll pay you more than you deserve today. So this list we do every year for the last several years um, with Forbes in collaboration with Forbes. And a few years ago, this company called Zero X-E-R-O, jumped onto the list as one of the most innovative in the world. And we're like, what's that company? In fact, it was near the top. And when we looked at it, we discovered that Rod Dury founded this company that basically sold the exact same kind of software to small businesses and individuals that Intuit sells with QuickBooks and Quicken. Hmm. And we called Rod Dury and we asked him, how did you get the idea to build this company that outside of the U.S. is taking Intuit on head to head? And his answer, he said, I, for five years or more, watched and read everything that Scott Cook, the founder of Intuit, did. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> and he said he literally would go to conferences to hear Scott and to watch how he operated as a leader. And here's what he discovered. Scott Cook founded Intuit on his deep questioning and observational skills. He can really see things other people don't see. And so Rod Jury noticed that. And what does Rod do? Well, he founded one software company, and then he's like, I think we could do something in this personal and financial and small business software. And so Rod and his team went to 200 small businesses with questions swirling in their head about how to make small business software, financial software better for them. They, want, they wanted into 200 plus small businesses and spent three to four hours in each of them simply watching how they went about their day mm -hmm. and then talking to them about what they noticed and observed. That's a 600-hour commitment yeah. by a founder. It's not like delegating this innovation work to somebody else. It's doing it yourself, which is what these innovators do. So what Rod discovered was many things. One, for example, was he watched these people come up, open their small business at the beginning of the day, get their cup of coffee or hot chocolate, go back to their computer two or three minutes later, and all of them were looking on the computer at basically the same information. So pretend, Pete, you're a small business owner and you're, you're starting your new day and you're looking on your computer for some key information. What do you think that most important data was that they were looking for? Oh, how much cash do I have at the bank right now and how much cash is about to bingo, leave? Bingo, <laughs> bingo, bingo. That's exactly it. They were looking at their bank balances yeah. to figure out cash flow. Can, do we have enough money to operate today? And um, what they basically did was, you know, they took that observation, which at that point, bank statements weren't linked to this personal financial so or, or small business financial software. They took that data point and 100 or 1,000 others 
to build a user interface, an introductory report when you log on that's incredibly intuitive, incredibly simple, and delivering the data you need to work today with your small business. Yeah, and what's really cool, I see what you're saying about the synergies of questioning plus observing is because it might not occur you to ask the question, what is the first thing that you open up and look at in your financial software? But once you do some observing, you're like, huh, this is an interesting little pattern. I'm going to go ahead and kind of validate that by sending a survey to a bunch of people and say, hey, sure enough, everybody does this. Oh, exactly. So I could see how they go back and forth there. Oh, totally. Mm-hmm. So we talked about the questioning and the observing. So then how do we think about networking and experimenting? Well, the, the uh, networking piece to think through is, okay, this is not networking, for, not networking to get a career advancement. It's not networking to get resources. That's a different kind of networking. This is a networking to expressly spark new ideas. And so whatever your challenge is, whatever you're trying to figure out, it's like, okay, who are the top 10 go-to people that would, if I talked with them, they would help me get a new idea, a new angle on this issue, possibly asking the questions I'm now caring about. And in this instance, when we're trying to get new friends, we usually try to find people who are like us. When we're trying to get new ideas, the whole point is people who are not like me. That's the point. They have a different technical background. They work for a different organization, a different industry. They're a different gender, a different generation by age, different nationality, a different political group, a different socioeconomic group. They're different somehow, some way. They've lived in a different space and world enough that they can give me an angle I've never considered before. Mm -hmm. And so Mark Benioff, whom we first interviewed for the Innovator's DNA book, and I re-interviewed for the Questions of the Answer book that you and I talked about recently. But Mark, at the very core, is incredibly inquisitive, and he excels at networking for new ideas. He calls them listening tours. He gets up, he gets out. When he's got an issue, sometimes his listening tours last three months, sometimes one month, he literally goes and embeds himself in a space in order to figure out what's going on by talking to rich people, poor people, business leaders, government leaders, religious leaders, small businesses, large businesses, non-businesses, literally dozens, hundreds of conversations, collecting information, getting surprised in order to formulate an idea that otherwise he wouldn't. So one of their ideas is this thing called chatter which is kind of this integration of Facebook and Twitter internally to facilitate conversations and get work flowing better on their systems. That idea came from a regular dinner that Mark holds with young leaders out in Silicon Valley to get new ideas, and that's where that spark came from. Mm -hmm. And so you're networking for new ideas, and one of the guidelines is you want to talk to folks who are unlike yourself, but it sounds like they can be from any industry or functional area or geography or socioeconomic background. So what am I kind of looking for when I'm choosing who to get in the room? Well, often it's somebody who's dealt with a problem similar to the one we're dealing with. And so if I'm a radiologist working in a CAT MRI scanning machine and I'm having trouble getting kids to settle down and be quiet and be comfortable in this space, I might go talk to dentists who deal with some of the same challenges and ask them, you know, how do you deal with this issue? How do you approach it? Mm -hmm. And they might get some incredibly new ideas. Otherwise, they wouldn't get. Yeah. Now, I mean, there's a historical example that's absolutely fun around this. Have you ever heard of Kutol wall cleaner, K-U-T-O-L? No, I haven't. 
<laughs> so back in the 1940s, you and I, if we lived in a home, we probably had wallpaper on the wall. It was paper and we had a coal burning stove and the coal put out soot. And at the end of the year, the spring, new spring, our walls would be black, not white because the soot is all over the walls. And Kutal wall cleaner was this putty-like substance that was rolled up and down the wallpaper because you couldn't wash it in order to clean that black soot off. And you'd buy gallons of it to clean your walls off in the spring after a long, cold winter. And after World War II, these coal-burning stoves, they were no longer going to be used because electric and gas-burning stoves were replacing them. So there's no more market for Kutol wall cleaner. Hmm. So imagine being the president of that company. It's the market-leading wall-cleaning putty company on planet Earth. And your market now is disappearing because there's no more need for it. Bummer. And... And the founder actually passed away accidentally, tragically, in an airplane accident. So his son took over in the middle of this downward transition. And then his son got cancer. So then they're really in difficult straits. And the family's sitting around the table trying to figure out, what do we do next? The machines aren't even running. We're not going to have a spring this year. What are we going to do? And at the dinner table is a daughter-in-law of one of the founders who's a school teacher. And she raises a problem at school. You know, at school, when the kids do their art stuff, if they use sculpting clay, it stains their clothes with all the color. And if they use the stuff you make with flour, salt, and water, and it just doesn't work as well. <laughs> so somebody at the dinner table says, why don't you take a can of Kutal wall cleaner to school tomorrow and see if it works for your sculpting class? Mm-hmm. They did. It was incredibly successful. That became Play-Doh. <laughs> That's so good. (laughs) The same stuff. (laughs) Same stuff. So all they did, the only thing they did was they changed the label on the can, removed the borax cleanser, put in almond scent. They sold the same stuff in in, in the same can from the same factory. It used to be 37 cent wall cleaner and it was $1.51 for the Play-Doh. And they sort of hit a wall with trying to market it. And a there wall. Was, there was this, <laughs> that's right. There was this. There was this um, kid show called Captain Kangaroo, like Sesame Street, but way, way back. And they went to Captain Kangaroo and said, "Would you put this this Play-Doh stuff on your show so we can sell more of it?" And he said, "Here's how much it will cost." And they're like, "We're just barely digging out of a real hole here. We need to. <clears throat> what what else could we do?" Captain Kangaroo says, you give me 5% of your profits in the future, and I will put it on my show three or four times a week. He did, and now it's billions of cans later, you know, incredibly successful. Captain Kangaroo, shrewd. Uh, yeah, shrewd <laughs> Kangaroo. <Marvel> there. <laughs> so the, th- the point here, Pete, is Play-Doh never would have happened if people wouldn't have been sitting at a table and talking across industries, education and wall cleaning, in order to solve a problem. And then having an experiment just try some at school tomorrow, small, fast, and cheap to make it work. And it did. Mm, I love it. Well, Hal, tell me, if you're thinking from the perspective of a typical professional, you know, as opposed to a CEO or head of product, what are some of the top things you'd recommend we do to get better at some of these skills right away? Pay deep, careful attention to the world around you and find an opportunity or a problem or a challenge related to your employees or to your customers, that if you did something about it, it would make their world better. That's the first step. You have to care about something that you want to do something about it. Mm -hmm. Once you have that identified, then it's actively use these discovery skills to find 
a solution. Just today, I was talking with a, a leader in my office here today who has a legal training and is trying to figure out the, the new legal tech integration with, you know, basically it's technology, AI, machine learning, deep learning. What is this impact going to be on the legal field? And I said, well, on the one hand, you could just sit in your office and think it, mm-hmm. or you could use these skills and do something about it. So starting point A, build your questioning muscle, your questioning skill by doing that question versus exercise about your challenge. Take four minutes, generate as many questions as you can. You'll find some you didn't discover before and pick one or two that really matter. Starting point, ask a different question. Then I want you to get up, get out, get into the world. So in this case, you know, it was for this lawyer, go and observe the people who are actively using artificial intelligence in their legal work. Watch them do their work. Watch people who were not doing their work. Learn about how both of their worlds operate. Then I said, go talk to other people who are integrating AI into their world, biotech, fintech, have conversations with them. And even beyond that world, maybe in the world of transition and change due to technology. Then I said, try a few small, fast, cheap experiments based upon what you're learning to see if it might work. And intentionally, once a week, step back with all this data you're getting, observing, networking, and experimenting, and take a moment to think to yourself, is there anything I'm learning, new, different, surprising, from observing and networking and experimenting, anything new and different, surprising, that would be relevant to this problem I'm trying to solve? If we don't take the moment to make those connections, they don't get made. And in the business of life, we often miss that simple but important element. Mm, Beautiful. Thank you. Well, Hal, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about your latest favorite things. Um, Whether you are leading yourself or leading your team or leading an entire organization, Everybody's looking at how you find and solve problems. And all I know is if you walk into the most innovative companies in the world, these are not passive problem finders and solvers. The senior leaders, the executives who innovate and disrupt, they actively use these five discovery skills over and over and over to do their work. And that's what makes them so good. Mm, Beautiful. Thank you. Now, could you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Ah, oh, favorite quote. You asked me difficult things. Oh, I'm honored to hear that from you. <laughs> <laughs> no, there was one I ran across. We were playing. I was playing with two of our grandchildren at the beach, treasure hunting, actually. And as I was looking out over the water and the sun was coming in, I, I had this quote come into my mind by E.B. White, always be on the lookout for the presence of wonder. Hmm. It was just that moment of wonder. What new treasure are we going to find on the beach? What new treasure are we going to see in the sky? And to always be on the lookout for the presence of wonder is a creative way to start and end every day. Mm, thank you. And how about a favorite book? Ah, I am actually, um, I'm, I'm in the middle of reading The Magnolia Story by Chip and Joanna Gaines. Um, we found a magnolia. It's basically their life stories behind the creation of this incredible um, business that they've created. And, um, you know, the powerful thing that I get out of it is they are very, very different people, Chip and Joanna Gaines. 
but they deeply admire and respect and honor each other's instincts about how to do things and what they might do next. And that has partly, I think, not partly, I think it's been crucial to their success and what they've done. Mm -hmm. And is there a particular nugget you share in your speaking, your teaching, your book that really seems to connect and resonate with folks and get quoted back to you often? Innovation is a choice. We all wake up, we all go about our life, be it at work or at home, and we all have demands that force us just trying to get things done every day. But one of the greatest gifts we can give to ourselves and others is choosing to innovate, choosing to create something new and different, choosing to build a future that looks different than the one we're living in today. And what's really cool about making that choice to innovate and create is it not only (laughs) gets us brand new ideas, but it also buys us more years here on planet Earth. We're healthier. We have fewer heart attacks, less depression. We have less, you know, it's just going to lead to consequences that can build a better world, not not just for us, but for those that we care most around us. Lovely. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Easiest is halgregerson.com. Um, but if you look up Hal Gregerson online, you can chase me down at MIT um, or beyond and we can connect with each other. And do you have a final challenge or a call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Uh, leadership is not about us. It's about building other people. And it could be those that are working directly with us. It could be the next generation who's going to take our place. But at the end of the day, leadership is not about me. It's about somebody else becoming better at exactly what you and I have talked about, Pete, you know, finding and solving the most important problems to make this place better. Mm. Hal, it has been fun and inspiring yet again. I wish you all the best with this book and your questions and all your adventures. Thank you. And Pete, same to you. Wish you well in your journey and adventure. In my simple terms, quest well. There you go. (laughs) I really appreciated Hal's wisdom and I really appreciate our sponsors. Check them out. I really appreciated Hal's emphasis and observation. And it's not just something that the crazy obsessed person does to visit 300 businesses or 200 businesses for three hours each, but rather it genuinely produces novel information and synergizes with the other stuff. And they got real data to show for it. So I think that's a great encouragement to, as he said, Get up and out of the office and observe what's going on right there. Sparks new things, different things, and can go back and forth with your questioning and your experimenting, your networking in some nice ways. So great stuff from Hal. Hope you dug that and more. The show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep447. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest. It's Ashley Goodall. He is a VP at Cisco, and he has got some perspective on the lies we are told in business and what the truth, in fact, is of those human matters. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. 
Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.